You're always having to come up with new strategies because there is going to be a day when you wake up and one of the strategies that you've relied on just does not work. Hello all, and welcome to the first of four, what I've decided to call lectures, though a little unconventional, for the Disability Movement Etc. series. I'm your host, Dr. Andy. I'm a scholar, educator, and advocate in the North Texas area here in the U.S. I'm very excited to be sharing this first conversation. See, the series on a whole has been a real work of passion for over the last two years. In fact, it's one of the only things that helped me get through daily monotony and overwhelming anxiety of the pandemic. I hope you'll enjoy each of the guests that I have lined up and you're ultimately able to join in in the dialogue. After all, that is what the whole point of Disability Movement Etc. is for, to learn from each other and work toward a more just future. If you'd like to join in the conversation, choose the hashtag DisMoveEtc on Twitter. For my first guest, I've invited Lily Lanoff, Lily is a writer, a fencer, and now a writer who writes about fencing. Now, she doesn't understand why her parents gave her, a clumsy eight-year-old, a saber, but she is thankful for it every day. She grew up in Washington, D.C. and graduated from Yale University in 2018, where she was the managing editor of the Yale Daily News Magazine and a writing partner at the Yale Writing Center. She was also a Division I athlete and an NCAA championship competitor. She's the founder of Disabled Kid Lit Writers. Her writing has received awards from the Los Angeles Review, Glimmer Train, and the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. It has also been featured in the Washington Post Outlook and Washington City Paper, amongst other places. She's presently an MFA candidate at the University of East Angola in creative writing prose fiction. One for All, her debut novel will be published by FSG this year, 2022. Now, the conversation you're about to hear took place live on YouTube back in September of 2021. It's in lightly edited for all the general ahs and ums, but if you'd like to watch our entire conversation, please head over to yt.columbodugavito.com or you can search for Dr. Andy, that's me, on YouTube. Enjoy. Hi, Lily. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. I really am so excited to hear from you and I'm excited to hear about your story. And I'm really appreciative that you're one of the first guests. You're one of the first people on the on this series. So I'm really thankful for joining us. Yes. No, listening to you talk about the series, it's, it's such an exciting project and I'm really thankful and honored to be a part of it. Without further ado, Lily, I will turn it over to you. So please tell us your story. Yes. Okay. So when thinking about what I was going to talk about for this story, um, I thought that it'd be a good idea to talk about how I got to fencing because as many people ask me, why fencing? It's not that typical of a sport to hear someone say that they participate in, although it is, it's growing more popular in the U.S. given the strength of Americans at the Olympics. Um, and Lee Kiefer, who just won a gold medal in women's foil this past summer. Uh, but I started fencing when I was nine years old with a friend. And what ended up happening was I had tried pretty much every single 
team sport and individual sport that you can possibly imagine. So my mom used to be a professional ice skater, competitive ice skater when she was a teenager. Tried that. I'm inherently clumsy. So that didn't go very well. Uh, I tried soccer, which I love. Also not very good at. Softball, not very good at that either. Basketball, track and field, swimming, the list goes on. Uh, and uh, I just wasn't, I wasn't athletic. I, I, uh, I loved being a part of team sports and that camaraderie, but I also wasn't very good at it. So <laughs> I was trying to achieve some sort of balance. And I was at a summer camp and they brought in people who did various professions. Somebody came in who was a firefighter to talk to us. And for some reason, somebody came in who was a fencer. And I want to make clear here, there are maybe five professional fencers in the entire world. This is not a profession. But I was entranced because I loved The Princess Bride and I loved Mulan. And I was so excited to see this person, a woman, coming in to talk to us about fencing. So I asked my mom, please, please let me try this. And uh, for some reason, my mom said, yes, again, I'm very clumsy. So, you know, giving an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old a sword is not always <laughs> the choice. Um, but she did it. And um, I started fencing with a friend. I started with foil. There are three different types of fencing tracks. So there's foil, epee, and saber. I'm a saber fencer, but I started off with foil, like m- many fencers do. And I was the only girl in my class. And that got old very quickly. And I ended up switching fencing clubs. And the only class open that they had was saber. So I became a saber fencer. Um, I started competitively fencing when I was 10 years old. I started going to North American Cups and national events and the Junior Olympics started when I was 13. During this time, I had injuries. Um, and these are, again, clumsy, very injury prone. But I only started to, I only became a disabled athlete and I didn't even call myself a disabled athlete then um, when I was 14 years old, when I was diagnosed with and developed um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is POTS for short. Um, And it's a blood pressure disorder. It's an autonomic nervous system disorder, but it affects your blood pressure and your heart rate. And the best way that I can describe it in the most simple way is when you stand up, your body doesn't really know what to do and it doesn't maintain homeostasis. So your blood just travels to your extremities and it doesn't travel up back to your heart. So you can get very dizzy and very sick when you stand up. So add that to fencing. (laughs) That's difficult. So how we figured out that I was sick, one of the first signs was that I started not being able to hear referees when they said ready fence, because I would hear have brushing in my ears from symptoms and side effects. Uh, I fainted on a strip once after about, uh, which, you know, not on my list of fun things, you know, fainting in a convention center in front of you know, over a thousand people, especially as a teenage girl, that was not fun. So when I got diagnosed with POTS, I didn't really know what that meant for my fencing. At that point, I was still competing pretty regularly, um, competitions usually every week or every other weekend. And what we ended up doing was I had um, an incredible coach, Darish Gilman, who's still my fencing coach. And he developed this style of fencing that he likes to call green fencing, which was the idea of conserving as much energy as possible. So I used to be a very aggressive fencer. I used to attack a lot. I had to shift styles. I had to become a defensive tactician. I had to learn how to rely on 
parries, which are blocks, and making people fall short instead of attacking. I took a lot of lessons on rolling office chairs when I was too dizzy to stand. And so I kept on fencing. I kept on going to classes. A lot of the time I had to sit on the sidelines and watch everybody fence because I was too dizzy to actually participate. And after a few years went by, I wasn't back at the level that I was at because I was in the top 10 nationally ranked athletes in the country. And I've never regained that ranking, but I was doing well. And I was recruited to college sports, which I had hoped for, but I had never expected. Again, at this point, I'm still not thinking of myself as a disabled athlete. It was only when I wrote an article for the Washington Post Outlook about the Red Bands Society, which was a short-lived TV show that I'd watched a promo pilot for, and I was not a fan. Uh, and in it, I briefly referenced the fact that I was a fencer. And there was such a wonderful response to the article. And I started learning more about disability in the disability community. I read my first disability theory book, Rosemary Garland Thompson. And I got on Twitter because of my literary agents and because of my book. And all of a sudden, I was introduced to this wonderful world of disability Twitter. And I learned so much about, one, what it meant for other people when I identified myself as a disabled athlete but also what it meant for me too. And it's completely changed my outlook, both on myself as a fencer and as an athlete. I don't usually describe myself as an athlete, again, because I'm not very athletic. I usually just describe myself as a fencer, but it's, it's completely changed my outlook on how I fence and also, and yes, what it means, but also uh, what the sport means to me. I think that it's very easy for people to assume that sports for teenagers are either just a way of getting recruited to college or they're a way to occupy kids' time or maybe, you know, get energy out, make friends. But for me, it was legitimately, I was able to stand with pots. And when I say stand, I mean literally stand because my legs were stronger because I was a fencer. And fencing legitimately kept me standing <laughs> when I was at my most sick. And that significance isn't something that's, I mean, even though I'm not the, you know, in the throes of my worst pause episodes right now, that symbolism is something that still is very important for me today. Fencing will always be incredibly important to me. And now I coach. I haven't coached recently because of the pandemic in grad school, but I do coach younger kids. So ages like eight to 12. And that's my story. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I've got lots of questions. But first, you know, you were suggested to me as a guest. And when you were suggested, then you know, I started looking in and doing some background research, of course, and everything. And in, in hearing your story, you know, it's interesting, particularly around the, the piece of, of your acquired disability. That was not something I had known. <laughs> and it, it, it's interesting that you had you know, brought up the idea that even as though you started to, to develop pots that you still never considered yourself disabled or, or a disabled athlete. And I have a, a very similar experience. I'm, I've until recently hadn't identified as, as disabled, though I have ADHD and depression. And so I think very much in, in your way, it was almost a, what's the word, an empowering kind of action. And I, I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to that piece of it. Right. So I think that one, the act of reclaiming the word disabled. I mean, there are so many 
really wonderful activists who are doing work, mm-hmm. like the Say the Word hashtag, and just doing a lot of work to make people or help people understand that disability isn't a bad word, it isn't a bad thing. And in fact, for whoever's listening, if you're not disabled, please do away with the special special abilities. If I had special abilities, I would be flying or walking through walls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. Um, or, you know, the euphemisms. It's fine to say disabled. It's not a bad word. And before I knew all this, I cast myself in my mind as my own super crit, which um, for those listening who don't know what that is, it's pretty much every disabled, like, Athlete who like is overcomes their disability, and I use overcomes in quotation marks because the disability isn't going anywhere. It's still there. Yeah. Just because I win a fencing bout doesn't mean my POTS magically is cured. It's still there. But I had done this. I had worked myself up in my mind because I didn't consider myself disabled because I saw the Paralympics on TV and I said, "Oh, those people are disabled. I'm not." And that's not, it's not that anybody was telling me that specifically. It's just the way that society is. Like, I've been, we learned that from a very young age. And it took a lot of unlearning of that. But I also thought about it as in terms of like, oh, look at what I'm overcoming. Look how, you know, great this is. And it took me until I was in my 20s in college to realize, hold on. You know, one, it's not my pods isn't going anywhere. But two, this, it's almost a performance this act of pretending that, you know, oh, look at me, I can fence about, you know, like, let's all clap for the disabled girl, yay. That's not what I want. That's not what I want for myself. And that's not what I want for other disabled athletes. And that's not what I want for other disabled people. If I can help inspire, and I know that inspire is a loaded word, but if I can help inspire young disabled girls to continue participating in sports, that's great. I, I'd love to do that, but I don't need to inspire any non-disabled people to say, oh, Lily can fence. I, that means that, you know, I should be able to run a marathon because if Lily can fence, then surely I should be able to do X, Y, and Z. That's not yeah. how it works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and speaking of that, yeah, I think it's immensely powerful, the, the idea of role models and in thinking of the same thread as you were still fencing and as you were sort of coming to terms with your own disability and identity as a disabled athlete, where did you have role models? Who did, who were you able to look to, whether it's, you know, the big time folks or just even people in your own, in your own circle? Um, so I didn't, <laughs> I have, I had role models within the disability community and then I had role models who were fencers. I didn't really have role models who were disabled fencers. I have a few, I know of one person who, whose name I'm not going to mention because I don't know if she is open about her disability or not, but she's been a role model for me. For me, it was more about finding disabled activists that I could look up to and then trying to apply the way that they approach their disability to how I approach thinking about my disability within the context of fencing, within the context of athletics. So, and then there's, there's also the complicated notion of the fact that with sports, I mean, there's so many sports injuries. So many people who play sports right now who are professional athletes are disabled. Yeah. We, they just don't call themselves disabled. And I mean, if we look at like, you know, post-concussion syndrome, if we look at like all these different things that athletes have, 
I mean, there's the percentage of athletes who are disabled is probably higher than the average population. Likely, yeah. But yeah. none of us talk about it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's only something that gets talked about after you retire. Yeah. So I didn't really have anybody to talk, to look up to in that context. But in terms of disability rights activists, Alice Wong has been an incredible source for me just in terms of helping me, one, feel accepted within the disability community. But two, she's so incredibly generous with her time. And that was helpful in terms of there's also disability rights activists within the literary community and within the kidlit community, like Marie Nijkam, um, and they are wonderful as well. It was mostly just about me trying to find, <laughs> you know, people who I could, oh, I can look up to them, I can look up to her. And then in terms of athletes, I look up to my coaches and the fencers that I fence with. I have to say, fencing is not a sport that <laughs> a Midwestern kid like myself grows up around. And in fact, it wasn't a thing I, I, of course I knew fencing existed, right? But it wasn't ever a thing I saw until I, I did my PhD at UVA. And they, of course, uh, used the gym where my office was tucked in some back corner. And it's just, it's an immensely delicate sport, yet very physical. And I, I wonder if how your experiences with, with your particular disability, with, mm-hmm. with the fact that standing and moving quickly can, can cause you to have some issues, obviously related to the competition. So I know you mentioned already sort of, of, of some of the strategies in changing your, your style to mm-hmm. better match your disability. Was there other things that you needed to find ways to adapt or accommodate for? Right. So I have to drink so much water, mm. so much water. I mean, to be fair, most of us aren't drinking enough water. Um, most of us should be drinking more water, but I have to drink a lot of water. One, to stay hydrated, but two, because, I mean, that affects blood pressure, that affects the autonomic nervous system, which is difficult because you're running to the bathroom in full fencing gear and trying to mm-hmm. use the restroom and then running back and trying to fence. There's also, you know, I have to adapt my medication schedule. Mm-hmm. So I don't normally get up at 6 a.m. in the morning, but for fencing competitions, sometimes that's what's required of me because the check-in time or the check the end of check-in time is at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. And I have to get up at 6 a.m., which means that my medication schedule for my blood pressure is shifted many hours earlier. Then there's the issue of the fact that when I'm sensing for five hours, my metabolism is sped up, which means that I'm going to process my medication more quickly, which means that the you have to shrink the time in between when you're taking the medication. There's so much math involved in this. And as somebody who doesn't like math and is not good at math, it's, it's a bit stressful. I... Also, had to become very. I had to learn how to accept when I needed to stop fencing, mm. when I get injured, when I need to take a break. That's difficult, and I think that for athletes, especially, there is this culture of just get getting through it, just pushing through it, mm. um, just pushing through that game or that yeah. bout or until yeah. it's fine. Nope. Yeah. No pain, no gain. And at the end of the day, you have to stop because you're compounding the issue even more. So I had to learn when to say, okay, just going to take a break. And sometimes that meant, you know, at, means that practice only fencing about. And that, yeah, that's frustrating. But I know my body and, you know, it's better for me to take care of it in the best way that I know how and not continue to push myself to the point where, I'm so dizzy that I accidentally injure myself 
which right. is always a concern. One of the other things that has always is unique to fencing is the mesh mask, which I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people, uh, <laughs> there's this, um, uh, I mean, people like liken it to like bee, beekeeper mm-hmm. outfits. Um, mm-hmm. But, and I have people ask me, oh, that must be so difficult to see through. And it really isn't. Uh, unless you have pots or another, <laughs> or another mm-hmm. condition that affects your vision. So mm-hmm. what would happen is, when I put on the mask, the mesh just looks like solid gray. So it ended up being that I had to learn how to feel the rhythms of the bout and not necessarily be able to see what my opponent was doing, mm-hmm. but being able to sense it and guess and read what was happening um, without that sense, uh, without being able to necessarily see perfectly, which was difficult. Um, there used to be visor masks. You'll probably, if you look up fencing, you might see some strange pictures from the bygone era of visor, visor masks that are like this clear mm-hmm. visor, but those got banned because they're dangerous and they shatter sometimes. So that's not great. Um, Probably a good reason. Yeah. So I used to use one of those and that was very helpful for me, but then that strategy was taken away from me. So I had to learn how to work with a mesh mask. Yeah. I think that like anything with disability and chronic illness, mm-hmm. you're always having to come up with new strategies because there is going to be a day when you wake up and one of the strategies that you've relied on just does not work and you have to come up with a new one. So it has led me to become a lot more adaptive to whatever situation that I'm in. Now, as a senior, you were one of the first physically disabled athletes to individually qualify for any NCAA championship event. Was that just in fencing or was that just overall individual events? Overall individual events. Wow. Um, now, I also want to point out that that's just openly disabled, openly mm-hmm. physically disabled. I don't know how many people are actually, you know, again, because as I mentioned earlier, there's this culture of really yeah. don't talk about disability. And yes, that's true just in general. And that's the problem that society deals with in general, but really, really within the athletic community. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've experienced it regularly all the way up, even through my sporting experiences. Could you talk about your experiences of, of being a first and what that meant for yeah. your career? Mm-hmm. It's funny because I kind of, I didn't really talk about this in my story at the beginning, but I think it's relevant to say that when I was a freshman, I missed NCAA qualification, championship qualification by one spot. I was the alternate for the Northeast region. And at that point, I hadn't even considered championships as a possibility I wasn't highly sought after recruit. I was just there because I I got good grades and I felt okay. And I was going to help the team. That was all that I was supposed to do. I was never supposed to be somebody who qualified for NCAA championships, regardless of my disability or not. So when I almost qualified freshman year and I was so heartbroken when I didn't, I thought, oh, wait a second. I actually do really want this a lot. I had a pretty significant back and SI joint injury when I was a sophomore and my fencing suffered because of that. So by the time I was fencing senior year, I wasn't fencing as well as I was freshman year and regionals came around and they were at Yale for the first time in whoever knows how long I thought, what a wonderful way to end my collegiate career as an athlete. 
I'm going to get defense in my home gym. My friends stayed an extra day and instead of going on spring break and they got up at like 8 a.m. to watch me fence, which is awesome. You know, my parents got to come up. My little brother got to come up and my little brother was heckling other fencers, which was not great. Um, I'm sure that's not well approved in the yeah, fencing no, community. I mean, it, was, it was nice. It wasn't, it wasn't mean heckling. It was, it was him insulting the Columbia fencers who wear one powder blue sock and one white sock. I'm going, mm-hmm. why can't you get your socks to match? But, you know, stuff like that. The um, most polite of heckling. Yeah, the yes. most polite of heckling. And I kept on making it through the rounds. And how um, regionals works is you fence one pool about, and then they reseed everybody, and they eliminate however many at the bottom. And then you fence another pool round, which is like six people, six bouts. Mm-hmm. So it's 30 touches minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, you're each bout fencing at least 15, 20 touches. And then they cut people off. They receive you again. You fence again. It is the most hellish competition event that fencers have. I heard that one Olympian said that the Olympics has nothing on Northeast regionals. And like Olympians have literally been vomiting into trash cans during regionals because it's so long. It and sounds so like I, it. So the final round is a round of 12. So you fence 11 other people. And by that point, you're just so exhausted. Mm-hmm. And my freshman year, I made that final round. And my senior year, I was the last cut off and I made it. I said, oh, that's kind of funny. I mean, I didn't think anything was going to come of it. And I was fine. And um, I was walking by the bout committee, which is where you drop off results and they convene the referees. And someone said, oh, see you in Indianapolis. And I turned around and I said, wait, what do you mean? And he said, well, you qualified for NCAA championships. And I just collapsed to the ground and started crying. And my parents were crying. My little brother was crying. Everybody was crying. I didn't know, I think, how much it meant to me until that moment. Again, because I just hadn't thought it. I just it wasn't supposed to be for me. Like that, that wasn't supposed to happen. And then I went to NCAA championships. I did not do very well, but it was a very good experience. And I'm glad that I went and I'm glad that I had the chance. And I think that the idea of first is always difficult. So I also have that issue with my book that's coming out mm-hmm. in next year because it's the first traditionally published book by a major publisher with a main character with POTS syndrome. Now, that itself is alarming, given the number of people who have POTS. There's millions. Um, but it's, it's, it's alarming, and it's, it's, not, it's not like, oh, I'm the first person to do this, or the first person to try this. It's, no. So much of it is luck, it's timing, it's being in the right place at the right time, and none of this can happen without other people who paved the way. So I couldn't have gotten to the point where I could say, I'm going to have this book without other disabled authors publishing in Kidlet. And the same thing goes for fencing. I had to see other fencers succeeding and doing well, not necessarily disabled athletes, but mm-hmm. I saw other fencers succeeding and I, you know, me wanting to really do that and having coaches who believed in me and my family who really believed in me. And that's what it took. Wow. Yeah. So that gets to my next question of, and you kind of touched on it, but mm-hmm. what do you attribute 
to your successes that you've had, particularly with fencing, but also in, in extension of that afterward as a mm-hmm. writer? Right. I really love fencing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if, if, if you haven't, if you can't tell, I really, I really love fencing. And I think that there are unfortunately a lot of athletes who don't love their sport for whatever reason, because they feel like they're pushed into it. And I don't really, never really wanted to be doing that sport or because it's something that they have to do for a profession. And that takes the joy out of it sometimes. But for me, love of fencing always got me through. In addition to that, like I said, my coach who developed green fencing to me, for me, who didn't just say, oh, you know, like this girl is sick and I'm just not going to spend time with her. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, worry about how she does the competition. So I'm just going to focus on my other students. He didn't do that. So he yeah. didn't have to give me lessons. He didn't have to give me lessons at Roland Church in a rolling officer, but he did. And then, um, one, my, also my family, my family kept on, you know, taking me to fencing competitions, even though they knew there was a very high possibility that I would just be sick and I wouldn't be able to do very well. And now that comes with privilege because my family was, was able to do that. And that is a privilege, but that support enabled me to continue fencing and continue through the worst POTS episodes until I could get to a point where I was actually, you know, doing better. For in terms of writing, I, I have like a similar, again, my family is very supportive. I've always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. So there was never really any option in my mind of doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I'm very stubborn. So uh, that led itself into resiliency in terms of saying, okay, I'm just going to approach this like I approached POTS, like I approached fencing, every publisher rejection, you know, going to get through it. And I spent three years on submission to editors with my novel. And I got a lot of, oh, we're not sure if this is marketable, which is is code for, oh, I'm not sure if people want to read a book about a disabled person. I think that, yeah, I think in some (laughs) uh, family coaches and then also... uh, I have really wonderful friends who are writers, whether they're disabled or not, who have offered an incredible support system for me. So Tracy Dion and Sabina Post and Melissa C and Carly Bliss and Dave Moses. And there are all these people. And like I said earlier, Marie Mishkamp, there are all these people who have supported me and I've supported them in turn. But there's a solidarity in terms of what we're going through because it is difficult. And then there's also disabled kidlet writers, which has offered an incredible amount of support for me. And I've been able to support other people through that. And I mean, we have over 350 members now, which I could have never predicted when I started it. Uh, oh gosh, was it so it been 20? So yeah, it was like two and a half years ago, three years ago. I could have never predicted that. And there's a huge, huge populace of disabled writers who are trying to break into publishing and trying to break into this industry and being able to talk to them about what I'm going through and what everybody else is going through. It shows you that you're not alone. And it shows you also when you see the very successful disabled authors who are in the group, for example, like Marie Kishkamp, it says, oh, maybe I can do it too. And that's, and that's uh, kind of the inverse of the whole entire super crit inspiration porn kind of inspiring thing. Like I talked about earlier, it's a good thing when disabled people get to see disabled people doing really well and succeeding at something that they want to do because it shows us that uh, there is a way 
through yeah. the minefield that is, you know, ableism and other, you know, intersections with ableism, whether it's racism or sexism or any other ism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because perfect segue into my next question of at any time, did you face resistance to your participation in fencing? Yes. <laughs> Not while I was in high school necessarily. I mean, I still, to this day, there are fencers who know that I'm disabled and they'll try to get me in trouble with a referee if I take my mask off for like 10 seconds for a breather, which is mm. upsetting to me on a number of levels because I'm like, you know, you know me, you know, I'm not, I'm not faking, which mm-hmm. is a whole, is a whole nother topic of discussion, which yep. I could talk about for an hour. Uh, uh, and I think that also because I was openly talking, once I started openly talking about disability in undergrad, I think that that made some fencers incredibly uncomfortable and that's not their fault necessarily. I think that that's just, again, society and how we talk about disability. And I think that, you know, everybody has to grow and learn and given the opportunity to grow and learn, but there were, there were always issues. I think the biggest issue was not being believed when I said, Oh, I am okay to fence right now. So I think that there's a lot of, and and this is true of pretty much this dynamic is true in most aspects of disabled people's lives, whether it's within when they're talking to doctors or when you're talking to teachers, it's it's the idea of people thinking that they know your body better than you do. And I have nothing to gain by lying (laughs) to say, oh yeah, I'm fine, but oh no, I'm not. And here I'm going to go, I don't, I don't want to faint on a fencing strip. That's mm-hmm. not, and I will, yeah. also, I want my team to do well. I want my school to do well. And at the end of the day, more so than having that first of being the, um, one of the first physically disabled athletes to individually qualify for an NCAA championship event, at the end of my senior year, Yale Women's Fencing cracked the top 10 in the national rankings. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't something that we had been anywhere close to for many years and that was huge and that to me is is as an individual i could be incredibly happy about the ncaa championship qualification but as a teammate as a yale fencer that statistic that saying oh we cracked the top 10 that's a big deal um right yeah for sure that's awesome as a disabled athlete participating with non-disabled peers right because typically when we talk to folks who are disabled athletes, they're, they're typically not participating with non-disabled peers in, in the traditional sense in most sports, right. right? At least those who identify as disabled or would identify. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel pressure to perform or act in a certain way? I know you talked a little bit about the idea of super crip, but were there any other things that you noticed in your time that, you know, just some kind of pressure from non-disabled peers, whether on your team or, you know, from others? It's hard to say. I think that I definitely did feel pressure to not talk about my condition a lot. And that doesn't necessarily have to be fencing. I mean, I still remember, I mean, all of us have, you know, those awful high school memories of, oh gosh, that one person said something really awful to me one time. And they probably have no idea that they said it and don't remember it now, but I remember every single word and every single moment, every single, you know, little second of that moment. But I still remember when I first got diagnosed and somebody was asking me about it and I said, Oh, do you want me to explain? Do I can, I can tell you about it. And they're like, no, 
and they laughed mm. and they walked away. And that was such a foundationless, <laughs> such a foundational moment for me in terms of I left for college having decided I'm not going to tell anybody that I have POTS. I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm chronically ill or disabled. And of course, that went out the window in a few days because it's very difficult to hide something like that. But, you know, you learn, you know, you, you intake this feedback, right, of, of how people treat you when you're open about your chronic illness and disability. And it's especially hard as a teenager when I'm, you're still trying to figure out who you are as a person at the same time as you're trying to figure out how to navigate this world in a body that you is kind of failing you for the first time. You know, you learn and you try to adapt and that adaptation sometimes leads to you wanting to not talk about it. Again, I think that it helped the fact that, you know, I came into the disability community and fully accepted myself when I was in my 20s and I was less worried about what other people would think. And I think that it's very easy to say, oh, I don't care about what other people think. And I think that, you know, some people say that. But I think it's more that I, I don't, I care about what other people think when the, the, when I care about those people, if I care about those people, everybody else doesn't, that, that doesn't matter in the end. That was when I was able to fully actually talk about disability and within the context of Einstein. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just trying to be mindful of time. We've, we've been talking, I could talk to you for a long time about mm -hmm. this, but I also want to make sure those who are watching in right now get a chance to ask any questions they may have. So if you're watching, you have a question, feel free to drop it in the chat. You can also use the link that's on your screen to submit a question. While those are coming in, I'm going to ask another one because I still have a million. Mm -hmm. I know you've fenced and, and you continue to fence and you still fence competitively. Coach, you said at the beginning you did try other sports. I wonder, are there other activities or sports that you've come to enjoy now as a young adult? Less so in me doing them and more so watching them. I'm a huge Tottenham and Brentford fan. Thanks to my little brother who interned with the Brentford Community Trust, which is a wonderful group doing wonderful things for the Brentford community and the surrounding area. And Brentford qualified for the Premier League this year, which was stunning because this hasn't happened in over 50 years. So yeah, so we've been watching... Today, they won their Caribou Cup game 7-0. So, so cool. yes, I enjoy watching that. I've also really gotten into watching ice skating with my mom because, you know, she was so passionate about it when she was a teenager. So it's nice to share that with her. I also, I mean, I love, the, I love watching the Olympics like I think most people do. But there aren't many other activities per se that I think that I've, you know, tried doing. I've always, and, and, and again, you know, a lot of this comes down to chronic illness and disability. It's, you know, how much energy do I have? You know, what am I going to use it on? And for me, that's always been fencing. If I'm going, if I'm going to use any of my physical energy, it's going to be for fencing. So I haven't really, I haven't really explored any other sports. And that's also because, again, I've mentioned this probably three or four times right by now, but I'm very clumsy. So there is always the risk of when I try a new sport, I injure myself and then I can't fence. Yeah. I, uh, not personally, but my coach had in college had like a long standing rule of nobody being able to do IM sports during the season because people have broken wrists before and they mm -hmm. couldn't fence. Uh, that being said, after season was over, I was the co-ed IM team captain or co-captain for dodgeball for my residential college. 
for three years and it was great. Fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, dodgeball, the sport that you hate as a little kid, but it's actually really fun as an adult. Um, I, I've, I, as a former physical educator, I have nothing against dodgeball, but there's so many better ways to teach those skills in school. If adults want to get together and do it, yeah. absolutely. It's hilariously fun. I enjoy yeah. dodgeball, yeah. but that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> Is there anything that you either wish you could have done or you something you want to try in the future that that maybe has inspired you but you haven't had a chance yet? Hmm. I've always wondered what wheelchair fencing would be like because there are wheelchair fencers who don't use wheelchairs regularly, but because they're disabled, um, they are they wheelchair fence. And I've always wondered if... And the way that wheelchair fencing works is you have to keep the lower half of your body on the chair. So... Mm-hmm that levels the playing ground because that way for people who are paralyzed from the waist up or from the hips up, they're not competing against somebody who can reach out of their chair and lean all the way over. You always have, you, you, you lose the point. You, you get penalized if you don't stay seated. So that's something that I've always been interested in because it might be interesting to try fencing when I'm not busy from standing up. Yeah. That's yeah. a whole other way of, competi- of, of competing. Yeah. I, I don't have any plans to do that anytime in the future because I, I, like, I like fencing, you know, how, how I fence. Mm-hmm. And uh, there aren't a lot of, surpri- you know, to, to surprise no one, there aren't a lot of opportunities for, for wheelchair fencing. I mean, of course, there are a lot of, there are wonderful clubs and wonderful coaches. They're just not as prevalent as fencing clubs. And mm-hmm. fencing clubs aren't that prevalent to begin with. <laughs> so Typically not, yeah. So in what ways has sport impacted you just overall? In what, what relationship has it have with your personal life, your, your writing, and even some of your advocacy? How does it extend to those areas? All right, right. I think that it's always strange to be an athlete in a writer's space because lots of writers are, I mean, let's be fair. We're all nerds. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I say that proudly. I'm a proud nerd. But um, a lot of people will talk about, oh, I hate sports or I'm super non-athletic. And I'm like, yeah, I'm also not athletic, but I'm also, I'm, I also do sports or I'm also a fencer and I'm a writer. I think that also it's given me opportunities in terms of writing because my first book is a gender bent retelling of the three musketeers. So I am getting to write dual scenes and fencing scenes and continues my very specific knowledge in order to write better. And I also did for a time Fencing Fridays, which was my attempt to teach writers how to write about fencing and sword fighting and dueling accurately because, and I I love writers so much. I love the books that are coming out, but oh my goodness, so many of them are so inaccurate. And every single time I I, I see somebody use the word lunge in a defensive context, I cringe because you lunge towards somebody with a sword, you don't lunge away. Um, So I was... So I, I, I did a bit of that. I think that fencing specifically taught me a lot of about resilience and uh, focus. And I think that I definitely applied that to my writing and, you know, waiting for publishers to get back to me, you know, persevering through that and also to my advocacy. And I think that, you know, fencing has made me a much better person. And it's all, it's, it's strange to even talk about how or has affected me and how fencing has affected me because I'm 26 now. 
I've fenced since I was, you know, eight, nine years old. That's most of my life. I don't really remember a time when I wasn't fencing. So I don't really remember a me without right. fencing. So yeah, I mean, I think, it's just such a part of, of who you are and it's been that way for so long. Right. right. And that's, that to me is the impact, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think having listened to you now, uh, you know, I think sport has had just such a positive role for you. And I'm, I wonder, how do you feel we could make it so that Lily's in the future, mm-hmm. other kids who may go through, maybe they are born with a disability or they acquire a disability at some point in their life. How do we make it so that they can have success, have joy in, in the sport and get those same experiences? Right. So I, I will process this by saying that I think that there is a little bit more awareness coming to the field in terms of um, the stigma and oppression that disabled athletes face. As a coach, I have to go through offensive coach. I have to go through safe sport training every year to renew my coaching license membership. And the first thing that popped up on this year's was that, did you know that disabled athletes, disabled kid athletes are much more likely to face harassment than other athletes? And I had never seen anybody talking about that statistic before. And it made me want to cry because I was just like, this is the finally being, that being recognized is important. I think that also something that's important is as coaches are, and again, this is something that's being, you have to unlearn this. And I think that coaches are having to unlearn this, this idea of if somebody says, oh, my ankle hurts, or if a kid, if a kid gets routinely gets injuries, it's not necessarily that they're faking. Maybe they have a, maybe they have Ehlers-Danlos. Maybe they have a joint issue. Maybe they have amputs. There are so many different reasons, or maybe they just get injuries a lot. That's also a legitimate thing. Um, yeah. But understanding that kids, they know their bodies too. Uh, you know, they understand what's happening to them, and we need to stop assuming that they're lying about different injuries and how they're feeling. And I think that would have helped me a lot because I think you know when. You, when you have a kid who says, oh, I don't feel well a lot, you just kind of assume that they're faking. And I think I didn't really have the language to use in terms of POTS. I, I thought that everybody, when they stood up, completely mm-hmm. got blackout vision and, and, and didn't see and, you know, got dizzy. Yeah. I didn't know that that was something that didn't know. I didn't know. So one, awareness would be helpful and talking about POTS mm-hmm. is helpful and getting people to understand it. Even in the time since I've been diagnosed, there's a lot more awareness about POTS. And I think that also because it is one of the side effects of long COVID, there will be even more continued awareness of POTS in upcoming months and in the future years. But I think that that would be helpful. I think that also helping kids understand that acquiring a disability doesn't mean that they have to stop being an athlete. Athleticism and disability aren't mutually exclusive. They, they, don't, they can exist together in the same body in the same sentence. It's not, they're not things that have to be separate. And I think that if somebody had told me that when I was younger, I think that would have meant a lot. And I think that it would have been, it would have been nice to know that, especially, you know, when I'm, when I had to sit on the sidelines, when I had to watch my friends fence and I, I couldn't fence, that would have meant a lot to me. I think that is a fantastic place to end on and, and a great period as a part of the first of, of these lecture series. Lily, I, I thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your experiences with us. I've learned a lot. I hope those listening in have as well. You've certainly given me a lot to think about too. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, Lily. 
Again, I'd like to thank our guest, Lily Lanoff, for being the first guest in this series. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope that you did too. Now you can order Lily's book, One for All, now. I'll provide the link in the show notes just in case you want to order. If you'd like a copy, you could probably find it just about wherever books are sold in the U.S. Or if you're outside the U.S., you can find it on Book Depository or Amazon. This podcast was produced by me, Dr. Andrew Colombo Dugavito, for my one-person production company, That Hippie Media. I did the recording, editing, and mixing for the show, as well as all its graphics. Go me. To learn more about the show and to see past episodes, head over to dismoveetc.live. If you'd like to support this show and others that I'm currently working on, you can do so at my Patreon. Find it at www.patreon.com backslash thathippieprof. If you'd like to get some show merch, yeah, I know, I'm a nerd, head to thathippiestore.square.site. I'd like to thank my friend, Adrian Doc Blust, for composing the music for this show. And lastly, I'd like to thank you all. I'm happy you're here, and I hope you'll join me next time. Hey there, you're still here. Look at you listening all the way through the credits. Since I have your attention still, perhaps I could ask you just a small, teensy favor. Recently, I submitted an application for a sponsorship for this show. It would go a really long way to help me capture the best audio possible and compensate my guests appropriately. Given what I can only guess, strong competition, the judges are including supporting letters as a part of their decision process. A love letter, if you will. So. What I'm trying to say is if you could take a few moments to head over to bit.ly L-Y, backslash podcash love letter. That's all one word, all lowercase. To write a love letter for this show and me, I would really, really appreciate it. It's only about 280 characters, so surely you can think of something nice to say. Submission window closes March 25th, so don't wait a second. Today's sponsor is KitCaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's a secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands we buy from. And what better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? KitCaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time you explore the world of podcasting with KitCaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from the staff of communication experts. KitCaster is your secret weapon in the podcasting business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com backslash dismove, etc. to apply for a special offer for the friends and listeners of this particular podcast.